Hey, folks, Damian Mason coming at you. Before we hop into another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture, I want to tell you about Pattern Ag. Pattern Ag is a company that has pioneered predictive soil analytics. You know, we always treated diseases and pests after they were already in the field, when they were already causing us a problem. But what if you can do this proactively through predictive soil analytics? Pattern has a technology that through their technology, you can say, oh, here's the likelihood that I'm going to have soybean cyst nematode. Here is the prediction on how bad of a risk I face for sudden death syndrome or corn rootworm and a whole bunch of other diseases and pests. When you know what your risk factor is, you can more efficiently and proactively treat for the disease. You can do this by going to pattern.ag and figuring out what your risk factors are through predictive analytics. That's right. Go to www.pattern.ag and then get a hold of your Pattern Ag representative to help you do predictive analytics on your farming operation. Well, greetings. Thanks for being here on another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture. Got my friend and co-host of the Business of Ag Success Group, Todd Thurman, joining us today. We're talking about government intervention into food production. You know, we might be in a brand new, brave new world, and it might not be a good thing. We are now, for the first time ever, seeing a situation where governments look to be actively working against the production of food and the ag sector. This flies in the face of what historically has been just the opposite. Normally, countries strive for food security, massive amounts of food production, because they know that food is a act of national defense, if you will. We're seeing this in Europe, and we've talked about it before, where all of a sudden you've got the European Union with a stated objective to convert lands to organic in fast order. In fact, it's going to be by the year 2030, they want 25% of all European Union farm ground to be organic, which thereby reduces production. Uh, The Netherlands took it a step further with a very liberal government now in power. They decided now that they are actively going to manage nitrogen uh, emissions and uh, then, but thereby reduce the amount of livestock. So we're going to get into this with Todd, but we're seeing this actually happen in fast fashion. It's really, really coming on quickly. Seems like the movement has gained a lot of speed and it might be coming here to the United States. The question is, and what we're going to ponder here today is, are we moving into a role where even our government here in the United States the most actively and most agriculturally productive country on earth. Are we going to see a point here in really fast order where the government is working against food production and thereby working against agriculture and will lower our food independence or, or our productivity capacity? Um, Todd, you got a lot of stuff on this. Neither of us are very excited about this. It flies in the face of what we historically have done, and it's happening. It's not just like, oh, boy, they're going to do this. This is not some conspiracy theory. It's happening in Canada. We are going to see policies in Canada that make it so that Canada produces less food. It's happening. Is it coming here? I think it is. Yeah, I think it is, too. And I think we really are at a a transition period where we're moving from sort of trying to incentivize uh, more environmentally friendly production practices, uh, things of that nature, um, where we're really transitioning into uh, a system that is going to result in less food production and less efficient food production. And we've never really been there before. I think I think up until now, we've implemented policies that were designed to reduce environmental impact without impacting our ability to 
uh, produce you know enough food to feed the the population and 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 we're moving it seems like we're moving you know a step beyond that certainly in Europe and maybe in Canada and and history would tell us that whatever's happening there is probably coming soon to uh, coming soon to American shores as well and I think there's definitely some indications that that's the case. All right. So you and I keep up with history and we, uh, you know, in my book, Food Fear, I talked about the past, present, future of American agriculture. The United States Department of Agriculture founded in the 1860s. Abraham Lincoln signs it into law and calls it the People's Department, meaning it was one of the very first government agencies. Um, and it was with a stated objective of to encourage, to do everything we could to make abundant, affordable and safe food. That was its mission. And now we're talking about a government that USDA takes what is given to it. Obviously, it's not powerful in terms of, uh, you know, what we, what we uh, in terms of agencies, if you will. And we seem to have moved away from the stated objective or what the mission has been since the 1860s of abundance and affordability, et cetera. And now it's been hijacked by the green lobby. And it's not as though we oppose environmental improvement. We're more efficient with our natural resource allocation now than we've ever been. You know, we make more calories, as I always point out, we make more calories of food uh, with less natural resource uh, utilization than we ever have. But the green lobby has now decided that, and, and it just seems insane to people like you and I, that their environmental cause is more important than food production. And I guess it's you'd say it's ideologically driven, but is it ignorant or is there actually some bigger agenda that I'm concerned about? Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. Um, and, and even some of the specific policies, I mean, you mentioned earlier um, the organic, the you know, push for organic. Well, almost all of the research, if you look closely, will show that the environmental impact of organic production is actually higher than of conventional production. That's not universally true, but it's it's very commonly true in, in many scenarios. And that is because the number one driver of environmental impact of production is efficiency. So how efficiently can you utilize your resources? When we say, you know, doing more with less, that means, you know, that, you know, that, the definition of efficiency is doing more with less. So well, the average, less, the average, part the of average person about, yeah, part of what we're talking about, we're saying less is is environmental resources and natural resources. So let's just use the organic thing, and then we'll obviously go on about what legislatively we see happening. So uh, European Union, and this is something that you can look up. It's the Farm to Table Program uh, policy, again created about a year ago by the European Union. So the people in Brussels that uh, draw this stuff up have probably never produced food. They've never been, you know, they weren't bottle feeding calves when they're eight years old like me. I always point out, I've I've produced more calories of food by the time I was 12 years old than all these people, you know, with their, their backyard herb garden will for the rest of their life. They don't get it. So the ideology is frightening, but it makes you wonder, is it just ignorance or is there something more that I'm missing? Because it's, if it's ignorance, it's scary. If there's something more to it, like there's a, like there's something that there's an ulterior motive, it's downright frightening and, and, uh, and, you know, Orwellian, you know, something out of a science fiction uh, book. We know, for instance, the push to convert to organic, it's because the average consumer thinks that's good. If you went to Whole Foods and you said, is organic food production better for the environment? They'd say, oh yes. You'd say, well, 
Actually, no, because of the natural resources required. Diesel obviously being a big driver of that to produce stuff organically, you usually use about three times as much fuel per acre because you're going over it a lot more. It's worse for the environment and the average consumer does not know that. So it's could just be that this is ideologically driven, but like I said, I, I'm concerned it's something worse than that. Well, I, I think it's it's ideologically driven, and I think the reason you're starting to see it in agriculture and in, in, uh, in a disproportionate way is because of the lack of resistance. You know, you, you mentioned that, that when Lincoln signed in the uh, USDA, he called it the People's uh, uh, Agency or whatever it was. You know, part of the reason that he, he said that is because the majority of people in the country worked in agriculture then, yeah, right. right? So yeah. it was the people, not because people, you know, the, not because everyone ate, which would be what people would assume now, but that, that the majority of the people, uh, what, 60% plus uh, in the 1860s, probably percent were involved in agriculture. They worked in agriculture yeah. every day. Right. And so I, I wonder how much of this is just the fact that there's only 2% of the population working in agriculture that really knows the you know the details of what these policies are really going to impact, um, and so there's a, just a lack of resistance, and and you don't have the ability to push back as much. I mean, I look at as I was looking at some numbers this morning: uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions by sector, twenty nine percent transport, twenty five percent electricity, twenty three percent industry, thirteen percent commercial residential, ten percent agriculture. <laughs> you look at that. And then you look at the amount of focus that we've seen on agriculture and food production from an environmental standpoint, and it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so I mean, I don't ten, know how you ten, can look so at those 10%, numbers. 10% to feed everybody is 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions. And yet if you were to, if you had to, if you had to suffer through an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speech, she would convince you that it's eating cheeseburgers that is destroying the environment. It's just not true. Well, you have, you have people every day on, in the mainstream media saying the number one thing you can do to reduce your carbon footprint, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, mm -hmm. is quit eating meat. And that is just an absurd statement. It, on its face, it's an absurd statement. But, but people don't. People don't know. They don't, they're not educated in that. They don't, they don't do the research, and they just believe what they're told. <clears throat> so it really is ridiculous. And, and we have a hard time fighting back against that narrative because we're so few in numbers. So from a regulatory standpoint, it does look like this this thing really, whatever they say their intent is, the real result is there will be less food production. We talk about Ireland. Um, Ireland's government is proposing new laws, which will give, I'm reading, which will give government the power to hinder any farmer from buying, holding, or spreading fertilizer. This is according to the Irish Examiner uh, publication. Anyone looking to get their hands on fertilizer will have to be registered as a, quote, professional fertilizer end user. So on the face of it, you're like, oh, well, you know what? To apply uh, this chemical, you need to have some certification. That's good. Well, if the result of the regulation isn't just, hey, we're going to train you in safe handling, we're actually going to limit the number of people who are allowed to do this. We're going to limit the number of people who are allowed to use fertilizer. Again, we're not talking about you know, plutonium here. We're talking about goddamn nitrogen. We're talking about you know phosphorus. Um, so, I, I mean, the intent of these things Again, is it just misguided environmentalism or is it worse? And I'm, I'm not sure that I uh, I'm not sure I believe it's just misguided or ignorant uh, ideology at this point. Yeah, I, whether whether it is or it isn't, I, I think the result is largely the same. And so I'm, I'm I'm you know, my concern 
is is that we seem to be going down this path very rapidly. I mean, some of these statements that we've heard from policymakers, you know, in the past few years would have been unthinkable the, a decade ago. You know, for for a policymaker to be you know that honest about you know some of the statements that they're making. I mean, they're they're admitting that the impact is going to be you know very painful on farmers and is going to reduce food production. That would be in that would have been unthinkable just five or 10 years ago. Yeah, well, it, we've moved into this realm where and it's, it's it's frightening to people like you and I and probably to more than just you and I. You know, uh, Obama in 2008 stated in an interview and it quickly got buried. Uh, the, the press, the press uh, didn't really cover this in an interview. He said, if if you're in coal, if you're in coal fired power, I'm going to bankrupt you. That was a statement. And I remember seeing that and saying, this is a guy running for the to run our country that is telling industry, private industry, private sector industry, I'm coming to bankrupt you. And then, uh, you know, the, the Biden here a couple of years ago said, we're going to make gas more expensive so we can convert to green energy. That was a statement. I saw it state stated. And you're like, wait a minute. Now are we seeing, and so my question is, are we now seeing this with food? And it appears that we are. We're going to make your food prohibitively expensive. For what agenda? And is it, again, Bill Gates would like to see $10 cheeseburgers. And he'll say it's because he's so altruistic, he cares about humanity. But meanwhile, very evilly has invested in all of the synthetic meat companies. So again, is it is it ideology or is there profit tearing? And I'd say it's probably both. Well, there's, there's certainly both. Anytime, anytime there's an opportunity for profit, you're going to have people that are going to exploit those opportunities. But I do think it's fundamentally ideologically driven. And, and it's very interesting um, to see on both the energy and the food side. They've been quite explicit, like you pointed out um, in the past. You know, the goal here, the explicit goal of these policies is to raise energy costs for fossil fuels to yep. move the public away from fossil fuels. Expensive gas and diesel is part of the plan. It's not a bug. It's a feature. Um, and we're seeing the same thing on the food. So the, the goal here is more expensive food. The goal here is more expensive energy in order to drive the type of change and the, the speed of change that that folks feel like is, is necessary to achieve our environmental goals. But it's very interesting that when you start to see the impact, uh, and, and there's a lot of different reasons that we're experiencing these inflationary pressures right now. You know, some of them are related to COVID and supply chains, and there, there's all kinds of explanations. But this is a preview of what's to come, right? And so, you know, you're talking about, oh, where, where our focus is reducing, you know, food costs and reducing energy costs at the pump. But then you're advocating at the same time for policies that are ultimately going to result in a higher cost at the pump and higher cost at the grocery store. And so uh, I don't, I think there's a, there's a fundamental lack of honesty in our policymakers not being willing to be honest with the public and say, this is a preview of what's to come. This is part of the plan and you're going to have to get used to it. You're seeing in Europe, yeah. policymakers are starting to make that shift and it's just, it's coming here soon. Um, you know, I, I, I saw, uh, we, we've talked a little bit about the, uh, uh, farmer protest in, in Holland. And I got a couple of quotes from government officials that are just remarkable to me. Wait a minute. Before, uh, we get was... into Holland, hey, before we get into Holland, and I do want to talk about that because you and I both have a absolute belief, and it's because we know our history, 
what happens in Europe is going to come across the pond and it already has done so. And it came to Canada It's coming here next. I want to talk about what uh, the Holland thing and that for, for you listeners that uh, don't keep up, Holland is the Netherlands. They are Dutch people. So it, it confuses people. The Netherlands is Holland. Holland is the Netherlands. And also those are the Dutch people. Dutch people don't come from Denmark. I have to sometimes straighten people out about that. Here's the deal. We had on our business of agri success group, uh, a Dutch uh, nutritionist that you brought in and he talked about the reality on the street there and what's going on in the country of the Netherlands. And it's actually quite frightening. I want to get into that because we both believe you and I, Todd, that's going to be coming here. And um, it frightens both of us. Before I do that, I want to remind you, if you like what you hear at the business of ag uh, podcast, go and check out the stuff we're doing at extreme ag. Uh, a little over a year ago, I began working with Extreme Ag. You can go to extremeag.farm. There's no E on the front of it, just extremeag.farm. Some of the biggest, most progressive, uh, forward-thinking, business-minded farm operations in North America, and they are doing product trials. They're talking about practices, things that they're doing to enhance and increase their productivity, and you can learn from them. It doesn't cost anything. You can become a paid member and have even greater access, but you can go and check out all the stuff we're doing there. Also, if you have an agricultural son, daughter, niece, nephew, grandkid that's pursuing a degree in agriculture, they are now giving away scholarships. That's right. We at Extreme Ag are going to give away five $3,000 scholarships, and you do not have to be a paying member of Extreme Ag to get them. You just go to their website, and it needs to be uh, submitted by August 31st of 2022. So it's cool. They're giving away $15,000 worth of money to kids that are pursuing a degree in agriculture, and it's called Planting a Legacy Scholarship. So check out extremeag.farm. All right, Holland. This is the one that's frightening, but I'm not sure that enough of the world understands this is what's coming. Take me there. So so basically the uh, proposed legislation, it's my understanding the legislation has actually been passed. They've not figured out exactly how to implement it yet. Um, and so you, you, you see that quite a bit lately. Um, but the, the goal was to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 49% by 2030. Um, and a 95% reduction by 2050. Um, so those, this is uh, uh, the Climate Act that was passed in, in the Netherlands uh, uh, in May of 2019. Um, and so what you're seeing now, these farmer protests are essentially a, uh, a protesting the policies that are going to be implemented to try to achieve those goals. So obviously- By the way, to the, to the, to the person that's sitting there, well, that's a good thing. We're going to reduce- Greenhouse gas emissions, yay! But the method by which this is being done, first off, it's almost physically impossible. And secondly, this is so heavy-handed, you're talking about seizure of assets and businesses. Yeah, I mean, there's even discussions about, you know, privatizing uh, farms, uh, you know, required buyouts. Um, You know, some of the impacts have shown that uh, the analysis has shown that this could reduce the livestock inventory by 20 to 30 percent. Um, you know, the Netherlands is a small country, but it's it's Europe's biggest meat exporter. Mm-hmm. You know, these are this is a major agriculture powerhouse. So we're not talking about, you know, some fringe country that doesn't really produce some, a lot of agriculture anyway. I mean, this is a major agriculture powerhouse. Holland is number two. Netherlands is the number two exporter of ag products in the world by value. 
by dollar. Uh, so the by U.S. Dollar. is well, not, They don't use dollars. Yes, it's behind the United States, the number two. And you're talking about Todd, a country that is one third the size of my home state of Indiana, one third the size of Indiana, and it is the number two agricultural exporting country in the world in terms of value. Think about and it. it's it's actually kind of close. I mean, the U.S. is number one at 118 billion. This is from 2019 numbers, I think. 118 billion. The U.S. is number one. Population 330 million plus. <laughs> uh, Holland, uh, the Netherlands is number two at 79 billion. So 118 billion versus 79 billion. They have a population of 17 million people. Yeah, and, I mean it, it's remarkable how much agriculture. And again, production. again, think and, about the think about the footprint. One third the size of Indiana. When we talk about what our vast amounts of acres here, three hundred fifty million cropland acres in the United States, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they're they're very. And here's the deal: you'd say, "Oh, well, that's why they're getting such environmental scrutiny." The manufacturing sector is getting none of this scrutiny in Holland. They're not they, this this li, the liberal government that is now in charge in the Netherlands is not going after manufacturing, uh, the population centers. It's strictly got the bullseye on agriculture. Yeah, and 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 it's ironic, and we discussed in the business of agriculture success group. The the biggest irony here is that some of these farms that are going to be shut down, these are some of the most efficient producers in the world. Mm-hmm. These are some of the least environmentally impactful producers in the world. So what's going to happen? I mean, this is a major exporter. If we shut down 20% of, of Dutch ag production, yeah. um, that doesn't mean that the Dutch people are going to starve. It means they're going to export less. And so where's this going to come from? It's going to be shifted to other countries, which by definition are less efficient than the ones that they're replacing. And so there, it, it, it's, it's remarkable that the irony involved in some of these discussions this will probably result in a significant increase in greenhouse gas emissions for food production because you're going to be shifting this production to places like Brazil, China, um, that are, are much less efficient uh, than the Dutch producers. And certainly, and certainly even before any of this legislation that's being proposed are have sketchy environmental records at best, which, you know, I, you can point this out all day long to, again, the the person that's consuming fake meat and uh, believes that somehow they're saving the environment because they're protecting the environment from a, a cow farting. And you say, you realize that your fake meat has palm oil, that the palm oil was produced in Indonesia, one of the one of the 20 worst environmental record countries on the planet uh, with child labor and then sh- stuck on a ship and shipped over here to be processed in an industrial facility. So again, that's more environmentally compliant than a cow out on the range in Western Oklahoma that then has a calf. So anyway, we know the reality versus the the ideology and, and the belief. Let's talk about what's really happening, though. You've got some other stuff about the politicians before I had to do our commercial break for Extreme Ag. This should frighten you. This is right. Uh, and uh, Damon, you sound like an extremist. Remember, we've seen that if you know history, the idea that it's for the greater good. You know, telling the Jews to get on trains at gunpoint was for the greater good, or so it was, uh, you know, portrayed. This thing about we're going to seize, seize and or forceful, forcibly liquidate your assets, livestock or assets. That's what's being proposed in Holland. 
Yeah, and and and, and uh, the boldness which with uh, with which some of these politicians are discussing this is is like we were talking about before. It's quite remarkable, um, and and would have been unthinkable not too long ago. This is a quote from the Dutch Minister for Nitrogen and Nature Policy, which is great. Say that title. Say that title. What's her title? What's her title again? Dutch Minister for Nitrogen and Nature Policy. <laughs> a lady named Christiane Vanderwall. Uh, but but it, it, discussing the impact of these policies on producers, this is a direct quote. There is not a future for all Dutch farmers with this approach. I mean, she's blatantly stating that that she's acknowledging that there are farmers that are going to go out of business as a result of these policies. I mean, you know, you know, in the recent past and, and still I would say today in the U.S., it's uh, the approach has always been how do we reduce environmental impact without reducing productivity? You know, with, you know, how do we how do we help our farmers do better without, you know, harming the farmers? You know, your first do no harm. And yeah, how do we get better? You know, this is a clear transition. Um, the, the, the Dutch prime minister, uh, when he was asked about it, uh, of course, this is a direct quote as well. Of course, it has enormous consequences. This is the legislation. I understand that. And it's simply terrible. And especially if they are businesses handed down in the family who want to proudly continue. I mean, he's talking about legacy farms and we talk about, we talk about century farms here in the U S and in Holland, you're talking about farms that have been in the family for, you know, in some cases, six, 700 years. Yeah, right. So centuries farm, multiple centuries farms. Um, and, 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 and obviously, you know, treating this with uh, the weight it deserves, I guess. But, but the fact that he's saying that and saying, oh, that's unfortunate, but it's just a, it's a reality of the situation that we find ourselves in. That's a remarkable shift that would have been unthinkable. Just, just you know, maybe five, 10 years ago, you can't even imagine a politician saying something like that. Yeah, so you've got this uh, thing, and now the person listening is saying, I'm not sure that's going to come to the United States. Let's talk about what we know that just you and I just pulled hot off the presses today. Right now, this inflation bill, which is also a climate change bill, which just passed the Senate, and I'm recording this on August 9th, 2022. So if you're listening to this, just to give you some reference, Todd and I just pulled up from um, uh, a policy but it's called bipartisanpolicy.org. So it's this has not got any spin on it. It just has gone through the whole 750-page bill and is telling us what's going to happen. So as part of the alleged climate change bill, they're going to throw $20 billion at agriculture. And it says to help farmers and ranchers adopt climate-smart conservation practices that enhance landscape resilience. So right now, it looks like they're flinging money at us as opposed to in Holland, where they're essentially saying, we're going to forcibly make you liquidate your livestock and seize your business. <laughs> right now, that's what's happening. But I get concerned because this slope that we're going down, this is not this is not stuff that, you know, the CRP program, Todd, was a fling money at us. And that's the one that you and I talked about before we recorded here today. In 1986, when the government comes out with CRP, you'd say, you know, that was a heavy-handed government thing. Well, not really. First off, it was completely voluntary. Uh, secondly, it's a lease between you and the government for 10, 15 or so years. And also, it did have the effect of increasing commodity prices by reducing supply. That was the first time 
in our nation's history where we said we are taking agricultural lands out of production. Usually we, we did not do that. We have had things like the Agricultural Adjustment Act back in the 1930s when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president. The Agricultural Adjustment Act essentially did some intervention to reduce supply, to boost prices. But we've never seen a thing where we actually, from environmentalism, said, oh, now let's go out here and put people out of business, right? So it looks like that's not what's part of this bill. But you and I both fear the slippery slope. Yeah, and you can see the trajectory of what happened in in Europe. I mean, this is not something that happened overnight. Uh, These policies have been implemented in Europe for quite some time. The legislation has been a lot more aggressive over the last decade or two um, in Europe. And so they've already been through all these processes and procedures. They've already had money thrown at them um, in order to implement new technologies and to encourage that type of thing. So, So what we're seeing in Europe is the next phase is that that at some point, you know, we can't just keep implementing these new technologies, encouraging you to implement these new technologies. We've got to set a target. We've got to set a goal. And too bad for anybody that can't comply with that. Um, and, and, and I want to I want to point out, too, that the people that are going to be impacted by this in the Netherlands are not necessarily the laggards. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this is regionally uh, appropriated. And so there's some areas within the country where it's going to be physically impossible to achieve these targets. So no matter how good you are, no matter how progressive, yeah. no matter how aggressive you've been in implementing these technologies to try to reduce your environmental impact, it may be physically impossible for you to comply with these standards. And so, you know, it, again, it's, it's the, the, I just can't, quite wrap my mind around the level of irony there. In some cases, you're going to be, you're going to be taking uh, forcibly taking out of production, some of the most progressive, efficient uh, producers um, as it relates directly to environmental uh, compliance. It's, it's, it's amazing. What we're yeah. And, it, and it's, and it's all, it's, it's, again, it's frightening that these people that are implementing this feel justified. It's the old thing of, like you, you read the statement from this person. We know it's going to be painful, but it's for the greater good. And these people have a, a zealotry <laughs> uh, for their mission that, again, is frightening. Back to the other part about how the net result is is also not only frightening, but then the ignorance and the actual effect of the actual the de facto uh, result is really uh, quite alarming. We heard that you think that about thirty one wean piglets per year per sow is a good efficient production rate let's just use your expertise pork production 31 32 something like this right would be would be fairly typical in in one of the more advanced countries like Hong. yeah and so in china it's about two-thirds of that <laughs> yeah we're talking about the difference between 30 to 35 and somewhere around 20. uh-huh so we shut down the holland hog producer under the idea that we're saving the environment and then the world doesn't stop consuming pork. The world then just goes down the road and produces pork somewhere else, somewhere that uses way more resources to get per pound of bacon and Brazil or whatever. Yeah. What you're going to see realistically is if you take out a hundred thousand sows out of, out of uh, the Netherlands, you're going to replace them with about uh, 180,000 sows in China. I mean, that's really going to be the impact. Yeah. And so which which one did was better for the environment. So it's it's very troubling on that regard. Let's talk about the actual because we want to wrap this whole point up. 
Let's talk about the actual heavy hand. Um, Canada is forcibly saying you're going to reduce uh, you're going to reduce your fertilizer usage and you're going to reduce your nitrogen is the new bad word, right? Uh, it was it was carbon and now the new the new bad word. I've heard it seven times in the last month at seminars where I'm involved. Nitrogen, nitrous, nitrogen, nitrous. So it's the new popular. Uh, it's the new boogeyman, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's really where a lot of the issues that we were talking about in Holland uh, go back to uh, the uh, nitrogen issues. Um, the recent issues in Sri Lanka, there's a lot of reasons for the you know, complete economic meltdown in Sri Lanka. So I don't know what to mischaracterize this as, as only being related to, um, to environmental policy, but it was a significant contributor. And the driver behind that was they basically outlawed chemical fertilizer. Overnight, they outlawed chemical fertilizers um, you know, predictably to anybody that knows anything about agriculture, yields went down dramatically and they had food, food shortages, which was one of the main drivers behind the economic uh, meltdown there that resulted in the ouster of the, the president. And I think he's uh, now hiding out in Singapore somewhere. I mean, it's a, it's a major, major disaster. But yeah, that's definitely the common thread in, in the most recent push and and as it relates to agriculture yeah you and i being history guys this is what uh, the average person doesn't even think this far ahead first off the average consumer here in the united states doesn't know anything about ag doesn't doesn't farm hasn't been on a farm doesn't understand what we do and then doesn't understand history and then also doesn't even keep up so this is all going to fly over their head but as you said this new climate bill is really a lot like what Europe was doing 20 years ago, fling money at the farm sector under the guise of environmentalism. But then when the next shoe falls, it's not just giving you some money to put in cover crops, it's put in cover crops or we will fine you. And then it's, if you also, then it gets where, like you said, you can't even comply. Now it's just, well, and unless I can breed a cow that doesn't uh, emit any, uh, you know, breathe, then we can't do this. And that's what, is the troubling part about this sort of legislation is eventually it evolves into it's impossible to comply. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and it's really interesting too. I think if we think about this in a historical context, it's only been in the last a hundred years or so that we've actually produced enough food to be even willing to consider policies like this. Right. Yeah. And so to, in some ways we're victims of our own success. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're fewer in numbers uh, primarily because We've gotten a lot better and a lot more efficient at, at producing the the products that that we produce, and so we're we're in a, we're at a point now where we can have a discussion about producing um, less food, where that would have been you know not even a, a potential discussion um, at most points in history, and so we really are in sort of a unprecedented time in terms of the fact that we produce uh, a lot of food, an abundance of food. Um, uh, we uh, waste a lot of food, and I think that's where we really ought to be putting a lot yeah, but, of our focus. But the, the, but the uh, zealots we're not seeing much on that. Sure, the zealots of the green lobby don't even uh, don't even tackle the stuff that which it would be easier to tackle. Food waste would be where you can reduce your environmental footprint the easiest. We've already produced the stuff. Let's just stop wasting it. That's not even where they go. Here's the next thing. Do you think the green crusaders and the green politicians that uh, cater to that? It's a growing religion, so there's a reason a politician wants to be reelected or to get elected and to have that power. So maybe they don't even believe in it, but then they can, you know. Remember, every politician can pretend, you know, to to preach it, to to be at the, you know, whatever the religion is. So if the green 
crusade is a religion, which I believe that it is. And these politicians are reactive to it so that they can attain or retain power. Do you think they even know that these initiatives reduce food production? I mean, it's one thing for the Netherlands to say, we know we're going to seize your livestock. We know that the government is going to take your farm that's been your family since the 1600s. Do you think they also equate it to less food? Well, I, I, I don't know if they if they acknowledge this, if they're thinking about this. But on some level, I think the reality is, is it's not going to really impact them very much. Right. If you think about the people that this is really going to impact, it's the poor. all of a sudden just lop 20 percent off of global agriculture production. Nobody in the United States is going to be in a much worse situation than right. they were before. Maybe food gets more expensive. Maybe you don't have quite the variety you're accustomed yeah. to, but nobody's going to starve to death because of that. In the U.S., that wasn't going to starve to death anyway. You know, it's the lower uh, income people you know, within a country, you know, that are going to feel the brunt of that um, the most. And it's the people in the lower income countries that are going to, that are going to feel most of that pain. And so there are some, you know, a lot of the decision makers, they're not going to really feel that pain. The people, their constituents in many cases are not really going to feel that pain. The, the uh, Dutch example is a good one there too. Like we talked about before, if they reduce their agriculture output by 20%, you know, Dutch people aren't going to starve. Right. You know, maybe their food cost goes up a little bit. Yeah, they're they're are, they're starve. top Dutch people in other parts of the world. The the Dutch are the top what, 10, 12 most affluent people on earth, right? I mean, you know, in terms of the G, per capita GDP. But yeah, all of a sudden, the poorer people in not Holland suffer. But uh, the worst thing is the poor people of Sub-Saharan Africa. <laughs> you know, right. we're doing these. Exactly. We keep doing it's just like uh, who always gets hurt, who got hurt by pandemic shutdowns when wealthy economies clamped down and didn't produce stuff. Everybody in America went on sat in their pajamas and bought crap on Amazon. The effect on the economy of Sudan was was they went from being kind of kind of hungry to now starving to death. I mean, that's what's going to well, happen with this. And, and we, we talk about cheap food. And I think part of and this, this is a much bigger discussion. But I think it's it's one of the underlying issues that we have to address here is we have to have a discussion about cheap food. Um, and, and there's this narrative about cheap food in the U.S. that I don't think, first of all, is completely accurate. Um, but th- what is the value of inexpensive, easily accessible food? You know, what is the value of food security? We have to have the beginnings of a discussion around that. You know, as we talk about uh, cheap food and it gets blamed for a lot of problems. But, you know, in the U.S., we don't really have that cheap of food. We have, we have cheap food. It's relatively cheap. But what we're always talking about is the percentage of our disposable income that we spend on food. It's pretty much the lowest in the world. Yeah. Um, not dramatically lower than other high-income countries, but significantly lower. So we are in a good position from that standpoint. But that's mainly because we're rich, not because our food is, you know, incredibly yeah. cheap. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you just rank it on food costs, yeah, right. we're probably in the top, you know, 25, but we're probably closer to 25 than we are 10. That's an important distinction, by the way, that it's not because a cheeseburger costs a dime. It's because it costs $3, but we make uh, the average household, you know, 40 or yeah, 68,000 or whatever that number should be right now. I haven't looked at lately. So, well, and then you look at some of these countries in, in sub Saharan Africa, yeah. some of these developing countries where their percentage of their disposable income that goes to food is 
you know, 20, 30, 50%, sometimes north of 50%. Sometimes in the 70s. Like Nigeria is about 50%. And some of those, you know, Central Africa Republic is like 70% of their income goes to food. And it's because they have, it's not because they have expensive food, it's because they have no money, right? Yeah. So we, you know, our food cost goes up 20%. You know, that's painful. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a existential crisis in a country where they spend, you know, more than 50% of their food right. or their disposable income goes to food. So again, you think that the zealots and the climate crusaders that are pushing these things um, from a political standpoint or that support the politics that do this, you think that they actually understand that the net effect of this is that they make food uh, unaffordable for the poor? I don't think that's the purpose. I think that. Do you think uh, they even understand? Do you think they even re- understand that they're going to decrease? I don't something? think they understand the degree. Um, and I think as, a, as you know, this this discussion has been a lot of kind of negativity, you know, uh, you know, what are some things that we can do to address this? I think we need to communicate better to policymakers the level of impact that we're talking about. I think a lot of times when we talk about for efficiency, for example, you know, that example that I gave uh, really quick back of the napkin, didn't put a whole lot of thought into that. But if you're replacing Dutch pork production with Chinese pork production, you're talking about dramatic differences in efficiency. Yeah. People think when they think, oh, organic versus yeah. uh, versus conventional crop production. Oh, yeah, it's less efficient. But what they're thinking in their head, it's two, three, four percent less efficient. No, it's 20, 30, 40, 50 percent less efficient. These are dramatic impacts. And so I think there's, you know, from a policymaker's perspective, I think they understand that, yes, this might result in you know less food production. But I'm not sure that they understand the the uh, extent of that impact. And we need to be you know, do a lot better job of communicating what those are. And then I think we need to try to you know deflect some of these misguided approaches to more efficient uh, uses of our of our effort and our and our money. You know, to me, the food waste issue is huge. You know, that's food that is being produced yeah. that is resulting in an environmental impact yeah. that is completely useless. And you know, we're, 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 shit, we're shit. We didn't just use all the resources to make it. Then we end up burning up resources to get rid of the stuff. So Yeah. And it goes into a landfill and produces right. methane, additional methane because yeah. we didn't utilize it. You know, so, I mean, uh, you know, that to me, you know, I look at that and I haven't read the, the complete bill, obviously, um, with the inflation, the recent inflation bill that was passed, the quote unquote inflation reduction bill. Um, I, I, I've not read through that, but I just wonder if we took some of that $385 billion that was earmarked for environmental or even some of that $20 billion that was earmarked for uh, agriculture practices, if we just invested that in reducing food wastage, I wonder how much bigger an impact uh, we could have. So here's the thing. Maybe it's because there's no power in reducing food waste. There's power to be attained and flinging money around. Like I'm looking at my phone, looking at this, the $20 billion and where it's going. There's political power in flinging money around. There's no political power in reducing food waste. And I, I think maybe that might be it. My bigger concern is this, as it appears right now, based on me reading my phone, this obviously this article just came out this morning, um, appears just be flinging money at stuff. But again, since we see what's happening in even our country to the north, Canada, reducing fertilizer usage reduces in, reduces the output, period. It does. We can say, oh, we're going to get more creative. We're going to use chicken litter and cow manure. Well, we already are. It was already going somewhere, right? Um, so I don't see any way around this that we actually, I guess it's price positive for agriculture when you reduce supply, but 
it's not tell that to the Dutch person that's having their farm taken from them. <laughs> no, that, that's right. And, and I think another point that I wanted to drive home to is we talked about agriculture being 10% where uh, transport and electricity are 29, 25% respectively in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. If you go through that list, the only thing that even in theory can't be re reduced to zero is agriculture. We have to eat, right? And every form of food production today has some environmental impact. Now, obviously there's things, there's some that have less than others, some processes that have less than others and all that kind of stuff, but we can't reduce that to zero, right? In theory, we could reduce transport to zero. In theory, we could make, you know, cars and airplanes and buses illegal tomorrow. And, and, and yeah, it would have a major environmental impact. It would be very disruptive or whatever, but it's technically possible. We could not do that with food. You know, we, we make food illegal tomorrow and everyone starves to this. And so that, that, that opportunity to reduce that is, is not zero. Uh, whereas in theory, at least in the others, that it is. And so we're looking at not only a 10% compared to a, you know, 25 or 30%, but we're also looking at one that can't even in theory be reduced to zero. And so the actual opportunity there is, is relatively less, even, even considering the fact that it's only 10% to start with. Yeah. Like you said, so it's kind of like the rules, when, when we look at what's happening in Holland, the rules become, it's not like you're saying, Oh, I want to be a good steward. Oh, I want to go ahead and, and be a good citizen. I want to follow the law when it becomes impossible to comply. <laughs> then you obviously you have no choice. And that's the destructive part of heavy handed regulation. And like I said, I will, I've said it twice already in this podcast. The frightening part to me is that the zealotry behind it is such that they believe they are accomplishing some greater good by decreasing agricultural output or worse yet, even taking farm assets from, from farmers. Uh, it's, it's beyond troubling. It's, um, and I, I actually, I predict, I predict violence. Uh, I mean, I, this escalates, this escalates, maybe not, maybe it's, uh, it just continues to be the ebb and flow, but I don't see a lot of flow. I see a lot of, this is ramped up quickly. Yeah. I could definitely get ugly in a hurry. And, and you know, we've seen some of the, the farmer protests in, in Holland have already, you know, started to get pretty ugly in terms of police being pretty aggressive with some of the protesters. And um, so, yeah, I'm afraid this is, uh, a sign of more to come. And that's, that's a little bit uh, more than a little bit depressing, but uh, I think that's going to be the the reality of what we're going to see in the next, you know, 10 years or so as these policies get implemented. Yeah, I think so. So how soon, what's your prediction? You and I both like to say, we uh, keep up with history. We read a lot. Uh, when does this $20 billion thrown at agriculture uh, in the current climate change bill, uh, which is a joke. And the only thing that's more of a joke than that is calling it an inflation bill, blowing a, Blowing a trillion dollars of new government spending is going to be somehow anti-inflationary means that the people that know this are lying. They're proposing this or they've never taken economics 101. Uh, when, when does it when's the next shoe fall? I think it's optimistic to think that and that that we're not going to be seeing policies that will literally put farmers out of business here in the U.S. in five years or less. I mean, I really think that's the that's the path that we're on the trajectory that we're on here. So this is not something that's going to happen 10, 20 years from now. We're talking about something that's going to happen in the next few years. We're going to start down this path. I, I agree with that. And in the thing that, you know, everything that's the tilt that I see coming out of Washington, DC, um, I've not had any reason to believe that it wanes. In other words, you know, you can talk about the pendulum swings back and forth. I've not seen anything that convinces me that we've swung. And this does tend to, th this sort of initiative, 
all the countries that are implementing this are led by pretty far left um, leadership. And I don't see that changing right now in the United States of America. And so uh, the, the climate cruise, the climate crusade uh, has not peaked. Well, and, and the, the, the political polarization that we're, that we're seeing now is, is really driving a lot of this. And, and I think that's another thing we need to be thinking about just as, you know, having a discussion about is we sort of characterize people in this environmental piece on the climate change piece as to either, you know, uh, you know, vast, you know, ideologues on either side, right. That are either saying, okay, well, we need to go back to a 17th century, you know, lifestyle to save the planet and, and, you know, and reduce the population by, you know, 70% and, you know, these crazy extremes on that side. And then, then the climate deniers, you know, the reality is that the people on the extreme sides of this argument is a relatively small percentage of, of, of people, right? Um, it's not 50% are climate deniers and 50% are environmental wackos, right? The reality is it's 80, 90% of the public is, you know, somewhere in the middle there and it recognizes the need to make some changes, but also recognizes that we can't completely upend our economy, upend our, you know, national security, whether that's uh, energy or food, we've got to take those things into consideration. We have to be reasonable about these policies and, and have reasonable expectations and make sure that we're putting our efforts in those areas where they're going to have the most positive impact while at the same time doing a minimal amount of harm. That's probably a good place to wrap it up right there. His name's Todd Thurman. He's been on this several times. He's also my co-host and production partner for the Business of Agriculture Success Group. If you want to join, it's a network of ag professionals, people just like you who want to up their game and stay current. We have every other week Zoom meetings. We bring in guest presenters, experts from various aspects of agriculture, talk about things. We have great discussions. So if you want to join, it's only $99 a month. It's 99 bucks a month. There's no subscription. You can do it for one month, 10 months, whatever you want to do. We'd love to have you. Uh, and you can hear more stuff from Todd. Todd is a, a Texas guy. He's got a company called Swine Techs. If you're watching this and you want to do more or learn more, how do they find you, Todd? Uh, swinetext.com is probably the best place to start. All my contact information is there. So that's uh, swine, S-W-I-N-E-T-E-X.com. And also he posts pretty smart stuff on LinkedIn about every day. So you can keep up with him there. My name is Damian Mason. Share this with somebody who you think can benefit from it. And uh, we're not uh, we're not tinfoil hat wearing uh, conspiracy wackos. We're just telling you what we see happening because we uh, we read, we keep up, we travel and we work in this industry we care so much about. And I'm telling you, I'm a little concerned about what I see happening from a legislative standpoint for food production. Thanks for being here, buddy. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. So next time it's the business of agriculture. Well, that concludes another fantastic episode of the business of agriculture. This episode was brought to you by Pattern Ag. You know, everybody in agriculture understands the importance of soil health. We also keep an eye on our soil better than we ever did through advanced soil testing. But what if there was a company that provided predictive analytics, not just checking out nutrients and all the elements that are in there, but also could tell you the degree of risk you face with disease and pest pressure. 
That's right. Pattern Ag can do that. They actually can tell you, hey, you're going to have a real issue here. You can preemptively, proactively treat for corn rootworm or cyst nematode or sudden death syndrome before the problem actually starts costing you yield. Go to pattern.ag. That's www.pattern.ag to find the nearest rep that can help you start doing better for your soil. 